Thank you all for being here this morning. It's a beautiful day today. I kind of just want to go outside. No, not really. Um, so we're going to be in Acts, the book of Acts. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we're going to be in Acts chapter uh, 6, the second part of chapter 6, all the way through Acts 7. This is probably the biggest chunk that we've worked through so far. Uh, so you can go ahead and turn there, Acts chapter 6. Um, we're going to be in verse 8. We're going to go all the way to the end of chapter 7 to verse 50, actually verse 60. Yeah, we got a lot to go through today. Um, so maybe you guys remember this for you older folks in the room. In 1992, I was two years old, so that'll date the rest of you guys. <laughs> sorry, sorry guys. All right. In 1992, I was two years old. Um, but Michael Jordan was fresh off of his first uh, championship uh, with the Chicago Bulls. He won in 91, 92, and 93, that first three-peat there. And he was one of the key figures in Gatorade's new marketing campaign, Be Like Mike. I don't know if you remember that. Be Like Mike. I want to be like Mike. If I watched the, um, the commercial last night. A bunch of kids are singing that. I want to be like Mike. And it's obvious why Gatorade would do a um, marketing campaign like this. Because Michael Jordan, it's Michael Jordan, right? Everyone wants to to be like Mike because he's awesome. Um, So it was a huge success and, you know, people about Gatorade and all that good stuff. Uh, But 20 years later, these kids that wanted to be like Mike are all grown up now. And I'm sure, obviously, none of them were actually like Mike. Maybe Le- LeBron James, I guess you could argue that. Uh, okay, I won't say that. I won't go there. Um, but if, if anyone, you know, if, if anyone can make the case. But most of them were not like Mike, right? But the sentiment remains. There are people often in our lives that we want to imitate, that we want to be like, for better or for worse. Hopefully we have good influences in our life, good people that we can emulate Um, that have impacted our life. And this is something that Scripture tells us about. Uh, Hebrews 13, 7 says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Imitation is a good thing. Um, The Apostle Paul says, Follow me as I follow Jesus. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Today, we're going to take a look at a, at a man who is worthy of imitation. This man is Stephen. And we're going to look at a, a very short period of his life, but a period of his life that um, speaks through to the rest of history. Stephen was the first martyr for the church. He was the first man to die for his faith in Jesus. The Bible tells us that he was wise, that he was full of the Holy Spirit, that he was full of grace and power, that he had the words of truth in his mouth. He's worthy of imitation. If there was any man in the Bible aside from Jesus Christ that we should imitate, I'm going to argue today that Stephen would be one of those those guys. So today we're going to work through the book of Acts, and we're going to see what makes Stephen so worthy of imitation, why we should follow his example, and what we can learn from him. So we're going to start in Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 15. I got a fly flying around me. Um, I'm just going to read this section for us, and then we'll, we'll jump in, okay? This is what it says. 
says this, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia in Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And when they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and when they came up, uh, and they came up and, and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up a false witness who said, uh, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The first thing we see about Stephen and what got him in trouble was that Stephen was a bold witness for Christ. And this is just a theme that permeates the book of Acts. The early followers of Jesus were bold witnesses. Jesus told them in Acts 1.8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's the first thing we see about Stephen. And his witnessing manifested itself in two distinct ways. The first way is he was a bold witness in his actions, what he did. Verse 8 says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. People saw the gospel in what he did. Great wonders and signs. Now, this is probably healing, and we don't really see that as much today, although I think it still does happen. But that's what we see. God sort of kicked off the church with explosive power, healings, miracles, signs, wonders, as sort of a stamp of approval that things are different now. Salvation has come. The Spirit has fallen. That Things are different now. And God accompanied it with signs and wonders. And that's what Stephen is doing. That is the great power. That is the great grace. But that's not the only thing, right? If you remember um, a couple of Sundays back or last Sunday, what else did Stephen do? He was a servant. He served widows. He served tables. That's what it says. He um, was the money handler guy to provide for widows' needs. His, the gospel was seen through how he served others. That's what we see. Great grace in that he was serving people that could not serve him back. Great power in that he was doing things that only God could do, right? Only God could heal these people. And Stephen was doing that through the power of God. Every healing, every wonder, every miracle was a witness to the gospel. And I wonder that about us. Just a quick mini application here. Do our actions, do others speak the gospel? There's a, there's a, a, a quote, I don't really agree with it, but I, I think there's a kernel of truth in it that says, to preach the gospel, use words if, if necessary. Preach the gospel, use the words if, if necessary. I think we have to use words. We, that's, not, that's not something that we can kind of leave off the table. But do our actions speak the gospel? Do we serve people that cannot serve us back? right? I mean, that is the, the picture of grace. This person cannot repay me back at all. Am I willing to go the extra mile for this person? Stephen did that. These people could not pay him back. These were widows, right? They, they had nothing, uh, and he was serving them. He was a bold witness in his actions, but he was also a bold witness in his words, in his words, verses 9 and 10. 
Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, so these were former slaves that were Jews, um, they were part of a synagogue of the freedmen, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, these guys rose up, disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen was preaching the gospel to a group of Jews that did not want to hear it. These guys were adversaries. These guys were opponents. They were kind of like a hornet's nest, and he was kind of kicking the nest in his conversation with these people. And he had such wisdom in his speaking and such power in his speaking that they couldn't refute him. Have you ever been in an argument with someone and you know that you're just winning and like the person cannot say anything? They, 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 maybe you've been on the other side of that. Maybe you've been in an argument where you're the one losing, right? But sometimes you get to talking with people and they just so have um, just a mastery of the conversation that their, their defense is so sound. They can't say anything against you. That's exactly what's going on with, with Stephen. He is just really nailing it. He's really winning this Jesus debate. But Jesus tells us in Luke 21 that it's not really Stephen who's winning. It's not Stephen's words. The words come from a different source. This is what Jesus says in Luke 21, 12 to 15. But before all this, this is Jesus talking to his apostles here, his disciples, preparing them for what's going on in Acts. He says this, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you. That's exactly what's happening in our story delivering you up to the synagogues. Well, that's exactly what's happening in our story. And prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. All this is happening. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. I love that. The world sees this as, Jesus sees this as an opportunity to bear witness whenever they're thrown in jail. <laughs> we would see this as something, as, you know, persecution, persecution, although it is that, Jesus sees it as an opportunity to bear witness. That's, that's just, that, that's another sermon. Verse 14, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth of wisdom. There's that word. What Stephen spoke with is what Jesus provided, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. We see in Stephen the fulfillment of what Jesus said before. What we see in Stephen speaking in his bold witness, is something more than just someone who's charismatic and, and a really good debater. This is a spirit-empowered speech. There's something more than just Stephen's ability to speak here. These are words provided to him through Jesus. That's what I'm saying. Something deeper. It's not that Stephen's an awesome debater. It's that Jesus is fulfilling the promise that he had already made, that I will give you the words that you need whenever you need them. This is a spirit-inspired, spirit-empowered speech. One thing that I've noticed about spirit-empowered speech, and as people are, are really sharing the gospel with others and, and really um, engaging with people, is that a spirit-empowered speech doesn't treat the gospel as one option among many options. Spirit-empowered speech is like a declarative speech. It's a proclamation Okay, it doesn't say, hey, try Jesus and maybe it'll work out for you. He worked out for me. Spirit empowered speech is a declaration of the truth. We don't believe the gospel is one option amongst a buffet of options. We believe Jesus is the only way to salvation. And spirit empowered speech approaches it that way. 
It's not afraid to be a little confrontational. It's not trying to be confrontational, right? But it doesn't mince words. And that's exactly what Stephen does. He just tells them the truth. He tells them the truth of Jesus. He doesn't say, well, this worked out for me. Maybe it'll work out for you. Or, or have you considered this? Or this is interesting. Did you hear about? No, he's like, you need to repent. You need to turn. Jesus is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. It's not gray. It's not squishy. <laughs> it's very black and white. It's a firm foundation. He declares it to him. And that's what gets people angry. They wouldn't have been angry at him if he would have said, well, you know, we're still trying to figure this out, but maybe you should think about it. No, he was very direct with them. He wasn't antagonistic. He wasn't combative, but he was honest and real and direct. Spirit-empowered speech calls people to respond to the truth of who Jesus is, and we trust God with the results. And so the boldness of Stephen here just jumps off at me. This is something that we should imitate, something we should pray for. Again, not to get into people's face, but to be bold for Jesus in our actions and in our words. That's what we see with Stephen. Now, these words weren't taken too kindly, right? So we we read what happened to Stephen, that they get mad at him, they throw him in jail. That's the next section here a little bit down. They get mad at him. They throw him in jail. They bring him before the the Sadducees, the Pharisees here, and they charge him with two specific um, crimes. And those crimes are both related to blasphemy. They, They think that he is profaning what is holy. And this is what it says, starting verse 11. It says, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They stir up the people, the elders, and the scribes, It goes down to verse 13. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So what are they mad about? Stephen's being a bold witness. What makes them mad? What are they charging Stephen with? Well, two specific things. The first is that that they're saying that he is trying to change the laws of Moses that he is being blasphemous against the, the law of Moses. So that's important. Everyone knows who Moses is. He was the giver of the law. The first five books of the Bible are the books of Moses, right? And in the law, the first five books is all the, all the things that God said that I want you to do to live in relationship with me. They took the law so seriously that the priests, the Levites, these guys, they would memorize the whole thing. Literally, the, the, the five books that we have, they would memorize it. That's how seriously they took it. So to say that he was blaspheming Moses was a really big deal, okay? So one, he was blaspheming Moses. Two, he was blaspheming the temple. Why is that important? Well, the temple was where they worshiped God. If you blaspheme the temple, then you, if you're saying that we don't need the temple anymore, then you're saying that we're not worshiping God anymore, right? So those are the two big things, blaspheming of Moses, blaspheming of the temple that we see here. And after bringing this charge against Stephen, he responds in chapter 7, and he responds with this big old sermon. Um, And we're going to read through all of it, okay? So um, buckle in. It's going to be a little bit, but I just want you to get the context. So they charge Stephen with these blasphemous things, and then Stephen responds in chapter 7. We're going to read verses 1 to 50, and then we'll move to our next point, okay? 
So this is Stephen's response in verse one. And the high priest said to Stephen, are these things so? Are you doing these blasphemous things? Stephen said this, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge a nation that, will, that they serve, said God, and after them they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So this section, he's, he's just telling the story of Abraham, a story that they would have all known. Abraham was the father of the Israelites. He's telling the story of Abraham. Verse 9, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph sold him into Egypt. So Jacob had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons. These sons sold one son, Joseph, into Egypt as a slave in Egypt. But God was with Joseph, and he rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food but when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. So this story is just how Israel gets from the promised land where they're at into Egypt, this tiny nation of Israel, about 75 people that come to Egypt. Verse 17, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So after a period of time, Israel is in Egypt. They become slaves in Egypt, but God brings sort of a savior through this man, Moses. So we learn about Moses here. So this is all just a history lesson. He just jumps into this history lesson. Verse 23. When Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? 
At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Verse 30. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your, the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now I come, I will send you to Egypt. So this is the story of God sending Moses to Egypt to bring Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. Verse 35. Then Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. In their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol, rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. God is saying, whenever you were in the wilderness, Israel, you worshipped other gods. You didn't worship me. You worshipped other gods. Stephen continues, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? All right, so that's a really long section there. It's strange. He was charged with blasphemy against Moses and blasphemy against the temple. And his response is to give a history lesson. Why does he do that? These people knew everything he said. They know who Abraham is. They know who Moses is. They know who Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. They know these are the priests. Again, they memorized all these things. Why would he jump into this Cliff's Notes 101 Jewish history thing? Why would he do that? Well, what I think he's doing is he's trying to use their own beliefs, their own words, what they hold tr to be true against them. He's trying to show them truths in their history that maybe they've missed. Let's look at the temple. Let's look at the temple in that response. The Jews believed the temple was where the presence of God was. Okay, If you wanted to worship God, you got to go to the temple. 
If you don't go to the temple, you're not going to be able to worship God. God dwelt in the temple. There's an interesting exchange here in John chapter 4, verse 20, that Jesus has with the woman at the well. This is what the woman says to Jesus. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. This woman, this Samaritan woman, she didn't worship in Jerusalem, but even she knows that the Jews say you can only worship God in the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, So God is constrained to a place. God is confined to a place. You gotta, if you want to see God, you got to go to this place. But Stephen shows us through the history of Israel that's just not the case. Abraham met God in Mesopotamia. There was no temple. God met with Joseph in Egypt, in a prison. He had visions and all that. Moses met with God in the wilderness on top of Mount Sinai, not in the temple. Acts 7.44 reminds us that there was a time the temple didn't even exist. There was a tabernacle. That's a tent. God was in a tent. Not a massive temple. He was in a tent. And then finally, here at the very, very end, he quotes Isaiah. And God says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord. Even God himself says he does not dwell in a house. He does not dwell in a temple. Stephen is trying to show them that they have their worship all wrong. They're trying to confine God to a space. And if he's being blasphemous against the temple, it's only their definition of the temple. Hebrews 9, 1-2, this is what it says. This is what it says. And let me, I missed this point earlier. What Stephen does here is he's pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of everything they believed. He points to Jesus as the one who is fulfilling all of the words of God in the Old Testament. And he's doing it first with the temple. Hebrews 9, 1-2 tells us there was a time where God was worshipped in the temple. This is what it says. In the first covenant, there were regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. So before Jesus, we worship God in the temple. A tent was prepared in the first section. There was a lampstand and a table and the bread of presence. It was called the holy place. So before Jesus, in the Old Testament, there was all this stuff we had to do. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Verse 6. There were prep- these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. So in times past, yes, we had to go to the temple or the tabernacle. We had to do all this stuff. But then, Hebrews 9, 11, 12, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that, that is not of creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Stephen is saying, and the book of Hebrews is telling us, that whenever Jesus comes, he does away with the temple. Whenever Jesus comes, he does away with the tabernacle. He does away with the tent. He does away with the rules. He does away with the regulations. We don't offer goats anymore. We don't have ritual sacrifice anymore. I mean, have you thought about that? Like, we don't have to kill a cow. Thank goodness, right? It's a lot of blood. (laughs) I don't have that that many towels to wipe out the blood. I live in a small apartment. We don't have to do that stuff anymore. Jesus is the temple. 
Jesus is our connection with God. Jesus is our tabernacle. He is the tent. No longer do we have to go to a space to be with God. God, no, he came to us. That's what he did. In Jesus, he came to us. John 1.14, in the beginning of John 1.1, it says, The word was with God, the word was God. But then in verse 14, it says, And then he took flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt among us means pitched his tent. That's what it means. Pitched his tent. So the idea is that the tabernacle is a picture of God's presence with his people. Well, now God got rid of that. Now he comes and he's with his people in the form of Jesus. The Jews, they could only conceive of God as one confined to a space. But Stephen is saying, no, that space is no longer. God is with us now forever. There's no longer a separation between God and man. And that's a good thing. That's a very, very good thing. And that's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Jesus was the redemption that they need. The problem with the Jews here is that they couldn't conceive of God in that way. They couldn't see Jesus as the the mediator between God and man. They couldn't believe in that, and so they missed it. And they killed people that tried to teach a different way. They were worshiping their own view of God, and they missed the God right before their eyes, Jesus Christ. And so, so Stephen responds to that, to the temple. Jesus is our temple. Jesus dwells with us now. We are no longer have that separation that existed before. Then he responds to their claim about Moses, that he was blaspheming Moses. This is uh, what it says in verse 35 here. I'll just leave it up here. If you remember, as I said earlier, Through Moses came the law. We have God's law through Moses. He was a mediator between God and man. Verse 35 says this, This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Well, God made Moses a ruler and a judge, and yet he was rejected. Verse 37 says this, This Moses said to the Israelites that God was going to raise up for you a prophet like me, from your brothers. Moses said way back in the day that there's going to be someone God's going to send to us who's going to be like me. You need to be looking out for him. There's going to be someone like me who is going to be a mediator. There is someone who's going to be like me that is going to bring you the law and the word of God. There's someone who is like, like me who's going to come as a ruler and a redeemer. There's someone like me who's going to come, who's going to speak to you the truth of God, whose authority you're going to question, and who you are going to set aside to do your own thing. Stephen is saying that someone is Jesus. Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the better Moses. He is not, Stephen's not blaspheming Moses. He's saying Moses has passed away. Jesus has come. A new thing has come. This is what Jesus said in John 5, 46 and 47. He said, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you did not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? With the coming of Jesus, everything has changed. But the Jews cannot see that. Jesus is the greater Moses. Uh, John 1, 17 tells us this. For the law was given through Moses... But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In old times, we lived 
related with God through his law, but now we relate with God through his grace, through Jesus Christ. They just missed it. These people missed it. Hebrews 3, 5 to 6 says this. It says, Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken of later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. The time of Moses has gone away. The time of Jesus has come. We are all his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Stephen's goal was to point people to how Jesus was the fulfillment of everything God had said and done. And we are called to do that same thing. We don't share the background of the Jews, right? We don't have that as manners. We don't have that. But Jesus is still fulfilling all things. Jesus still fulfills everything people long for. People want to know that there is good news out there. People want hope, right? I think people do want hope. People want good news. People want to know that there is truth, I believe. Jesus fulfills all of that. Jesus, people want to know that heaven is real. They don't want to know, they don't want to, no one wants to believe that the end of all this is just nothing, right? I would say even in atheists, if they're being true, honest to themselves, they don't want to think that there's nothing after this. Jesus fulfills all things. Stephen is showing them that even their own beliefs Jesus fulfills, and we need to do the same thing to show people that Jesus fulfills all things. And so that's what he does. Um, He shows them how he fulfills the temple, and then he fulfills Moses. Um, But by this time, the people hearing this are kind of picking up on something that's implied. If Jesus is being compared to Moses, then it's not too hard to think that maybe the people that opposed Moses are compared to the people that are opposing Stephen now. There's an equivalent here. The same people that opposed Moses are continuing to oppose God's people in here, the priests here. So that's what we see in verse, th- in verse 51 of uh, 53, right here. This is Stephen's response to them. He says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Just as Moses was not believed and resisted long ago, so Jesus was not believed and resisted, and even in Stephen's day. And then he responds to them, he calls them a stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hardened ears, always resistant to the Holy Spirit. The next thing we see about Stephen is that he was real with people about where they stand with God. He called them stiff-necked. This is straight from the Old Testament. They, if they heard this, they would have known. They would have been familiar with the phrase. He said they were uncircumcised in their heart. He said that they were resisting the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what God said to his people in the Old Testament. This is exactly what is continuing here. Throughout the history of the Jews, they rejected the leaders of God. They never followed the leaders of God, and they continued to do that even till this day. And so Stephen was real with them about that. He gave them some very hard words. I've never called anyone stiff-necked before, but maybe I should, and maybe you should too. I've never called someone uncircumcised in the heart, but maybe I should. 
Hard words are required for hard sins. Sometimes people don't need their hands held. Sometimes people don't need a pat on the back and say, I know you messed up, but it'll be better. Sometimes they need to be kicked in the pants. Sometimes they need to hear hard words. These people are self-righteous. They were resistant to the Spirit of God. They did not listen to what God had told them. And so uh, Stephen brings these hard words to him. As followers of Jesus, hard conversations are inevitable. Hard conversations come. People need the truth and they need it the way that they need it. And sometimes that's a hard conversation. I don't, I've sat down with many people and had really hard conversations before, right? Many times. And just being honest about what they're doing. They need the hard word. So we have to do the same thing. We have to show people where they stand with God. Sometimes it's in gentleness, but sometimes it's in toughness too. That's exactly what Stephen does. One of the hardest uh, moments in ministry that I had was um, at the church I was at in Augusta. And this lady came in, she was on our worship team, and she kind of bust through the door, and she was all in a panic, all in a frenzy. And she, uh, she asked for me, and I was sat down, sat down with her, and she was just crying, crying, crying. And she told me she had realized that her oldest son had been sexually abusing his sister. And she just had found this out, and she was freaking out. It was actually my birthday. It was just a weird day for me. Um, and she had her son in the car, and she said, I want you to talk to him. And I was, I was like, what am I going to say to this guy? You know what I mean? And because he, he had been using pornography, and it, it just grew and grew and grew, and it turned into him abusing his, his little sister. And so this guy is sitting right across from me, right? What does he need? He needs the truth of where he stands with God. He needs hard words. Someone who has perpetrated such a thing against his own sister, right? He needs the grace of God, but he needs the truth of God. He needs to know that this leads to destruction, it leads to hell. He doesn't need me to say, well, it's going to get better, blah, blah, blah. No, he doesn't need that. Sometimes people need, if they're so stuck in their sin, they need the hard truth of God to lodge them out. Now, I don't know how this kid's doing anymore. Um, I'm assuming that they've gotten through that. Um, and that was, that was just probably the, the hardest day I've ever had in ministry before. But that was exactly what this boy needed. And then it's up to them to respond or not. For these Jews here, they hear these hard words, but they don't respond in repentance. The next thing we see about Stephen is that he pays the ultimate price for his faith in Jesus, verse 54 and 60 says this, Now when they heard these things, these hard words, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul And as they were stoning him, Stephen called out, 
Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The Jews here did not want to hear these hard words of Stephen, and so they killed him. Stephen paid the ultimate price for his faith. He sees Jesus before meeting the fate of Jesus. And he was true to his master till the very end, speaking the same way at his death that even Jesus at his death spoke. This is what Stephen says. He says, Do not hold the sin against them. Lord, receive my spirit. Well, look what Jesus says whenever he dies in Luke 23, 34, 36. Jesus said the same thing. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. For Stephen, he knew where he was going. He saw where he was going. He says he saw Jesus at the right hand of God. So he had no fear of that. In fact, I think he was more fearful for the people that were killing him. Why else would he ask for their forgiveness? He had eternity in arm's reach. He was there, and he was ready for it. He was more concerned about his murders and his death and his own death. That's such a different perspective. To see as Stephen sees, to see the eternal and let it sort of overwhelm the temporary here, to see heaven and not be so sort of encumbered by the things of the world, to see Christ at the right hand of God. I love the hymn that says, Let the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Stephen, he sees Jesus. And because of that, he's running towards him no matter what's going to happen to him. There was another famous martyr, more contemporary to our time, that you might be familiar with. His name was Jim Elliott. He was also killed for his faith. Not killed in Jerusalem, but killed in the jungles of Ecuador by a violent, um, very violent tribe there that he had been trying to connect with for years and years and years. Jim Elliot, before he was murdered by this, um, this tribe, he said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We don't take anything in this world with us to heaven. What we gain in heaven is everything. We gain God. We gain, we gain the reward. Jesus says, don't store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust can destroy and thieves can break in and steal, but store for yourselves treasures in heaven. That's what he says. That's the life that Stephen lived. What is this life if not for Jesus? What is this world if not for Jesus? What are we going to take with us to heaven other than the salvation that Jesus has provided for us? Stephen paid the ultimate price for Jesus, but it was only after Jesus paid the ultimate price for him. And so for us, if we could see the way Stephen sees, Stephen's Jesus and our Jesus is exactly the same. I think Stephen just saw Jesus a little bit better than we do, and he was willing to pay the ultimate price. So may God open up our eyes to see him, to be a bold witness for him as Stephen was, to point to Jesus as the fulfillment of all of our needs, as Stephen does, to pay whatever price necessary, and to speak the words that need to be spoken, as Stephen does, that we may be faithful for him. 
Stephen's the ultimate picture of laying it all down for Christ. And my prayer that we would be like that, like him, like Stephen. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord, just want to thank you for this morning, this time to gather. Thank you for this example that we have in Stephen. I just want to pray um, that you would encourage us. I'm not saying that we will be murdered for our faith. I don't, that, that probably wouldn't happen in Gorham, Maine, Lord. Um, but there's a lot of things that, that, that might keep us from being what you have called us to be, from being faithful to you. There's a lot of temptations in this world, whether it's sin or whether it's intimidation or whether it's just fear, to not be faithful to you. And I just pray that, that we would see you as Stephen saw you, Lord, that no matter what, we would want that more than what's before our eyes in this world. Um, it's such an example, Lord, and it's such a, it's such a, a beautiful picture of, of what it means to, to be a follower of you. And so I just want to pray, God, that we would be like Stephen. I pray that, that we would be willing to be bold, that we would um, speak your truth, that we would speak hard truths, Lord, that you would bring us out of our shell, and that you would be glorified in us, Lord. If we had a church full of Stephens, this place would be turned upside down. And uh, that's what I pray for, Lord. And so I just thank you for that. Thank you for uh, your word to us this morning. I pray that you would encourage us in it. He'd be glorified in it. And it's all in the name of Jesus that I pray these things. Amen.